Section 41 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan, Revolt 1, Part 5. He was sitting in the restaurant of the theatre, in a group of musicians belonging to the orchestra, whom he was scandalizing by his artistic judgments. They were not all of the same opinion, but they were all ruffled by the freedom of his language. Old Kraus, the alto, a good fellow and a good musician, who sincerely loved Christophe, tried to turn the conversation. He coughed, then looked out for an opportunity of making a pun. But Christophe did not hear him. He went on, and Kraus mourned and thought, what makes him say such things? God bless him! You can think these things, but you must not say them. The odd thing was that he also thought these things. At least he had a glimmering of them, and Christophe's words roused many doubts in him, but he had not the courage to confess it, or openly to agree, half from fear of compromising himself, half from modesty and distrust of himself. Weigel, the cornet player, did not want to know anything. He was ready to admire anything or anybody, good or bad, star or gas-jet. Everything was the same to him. There were no degrees in his admiration. He admired, admired, admired. It was a vital necessity to him. It hurt him when anybody tried to curb him. Old Koo, the violoncellist, suffered even more. He loved bad music with all his heart. Everything that Christophe hounded down with his sarcasm and invective was infinitely dear to him. Instinctively his choice pitched on the most conventional works. His soul was a reservoir of tearful and high-flown emotion. Indeed, he was not dishonest in his tender regard for all the sham great men. It was when he tried to pretend that he liked the real great men that he was lying to himself, in perfect innocence. There are Brahmins who think to find in their god the breath of old men of genius. They love Beethoven in Brahms. Koo went one better. He loved Brahms in Beethoven. But the most enraged of all with Christoph's paradoxes was Spitz, the bassoon. It was not so much his musical instinct that was wounded as his natural servility. One of the Roman emperors wished to die standing. Spitz wished to die as he had lived, crawling. That was his natural position. It was delightful to him to grovel at the feet of everything that was official, hallowed, arrived, and he was beside himself when anybody tried to keep him from playing the lackey comfortably. So Koo groaned, Weigel threw up his hands in despair, Kraus made jokes, and Spitz shouted in a shrill voice. But Christophe went on imperturbably shouting louder than the rest, and saying monstrous things about Germany and the Germans. At the next table a young man was listening to him and rocking with laughter. He had black curly hair, fine intelligent eyes, a large nose, which at its end could not make up its mind to go either to right or left, and rather than go straight on, went to both sides at once. Thick lips and a clever, mobile face. He was following everything that Christophe said, hanging on his lips, reflecting every word with a sympathetic and yet mocking attention, wrinkling up his forehead, his temples, the corners of his eyes, round his nostrils and cheeks, grimacing with laughter, and every now and then shaking all over convulsively. 
He did not join in the conversation, but he did not miss a word of it. He showed his joy especially when he saw Christophe, involved in some argument and heckled by Spitz, flounder about, stammer, and stutter with anger, until he had found the word he was seeking, a rock with which to crush his adversary. And his delight knew no bounds when Christophe, swept along by his passions far beyond the capacity of his thought, enunciated monstrous paradoxes which made his hearers snort. At last they broke up, each of them tired out with feeling and alleging his own superiority. As Christophe, the last to go, was leaving the room, he was accosted by the young man who had listened to his words with such pleasure. He had not yet noticed him. The other politely removed his hat, smiled, and asked permission to introduce himself. Franz Mannheim. He begged pardon for his indiscretion in listening to the argument, and congratulated Christophe on the maestria with which he had pulverized his opponents. He was still laughing at the thought of it. Christophe was glad to hear it, and looked at him a little distrustfully. "'Seriously?' he asked. "'You are not laughing at me?' The other swore by the gods. Christophe's face lit up. "'Then you think I am right? You are of my opinion?' "'Well,' said Mannheim, "'I am not a musician. I know nothing of music.' The only music I like, if it is not too flattering to say so, is yours. That may show you that my taste is not so bad. Oh, said Christophe skeptically, though he was flattered all the same, that proves nothing. You are difficult to please. Good. I think as you do. That proves nothing. And I don't venture to judge what you say of German musicians. But, anyhow, it is so true of the Germans in general, the old Germans, all the romantic idiots with their rancid thought, their sloppy emotion, their senile reiteration which we are asked to admire, the eternal yesterday which has always been and always will be and will be law to-morrow because it is law to-day. He recited a few lines of the famous passage in Schiller. Das ewig gestrige, das immer war und immer wiederkehrt. Himself first of all. He stopped in the middle of his recitation. Who? asked Christophe. The pump-maker who wrote that. Christophe did not understand, but Mannheim went on. I should like to have a general cleaning up of art and thought every fifty years. Nothing to be left standing. A little drastic, said Christophe, smiling. No, I assure you, fifty years is too much. I should say thirty, and even less. It is a hygienic measure. One does not keep one's ancestors in one's house. One gets rid of them, when they are dead, and sends them elsewhere, there politely to rot, and one places stones on them to be quite sure that they will not come back. Nice people put flowers on them, too. I don't mind if they like it. All I ask is to be left in peace. I leave them alone, each for his own side, say I, the dead and the living. There are some dead who are more alive than the living. No, no, it would be more true to say that there are some living who are more dead than the dead. Maybe. In any case, there are old things which are still young. Then if they are still young, we can find them for ourselves. But I don't believe it. What has been good once never is good again. Nothing is good but change. Before all, we have to rid ourselves of the old men and things. There are too many of them in Germany. Death to them, say I. Christophe listened to these squibs attentively and labored to discuss them. He was in part in sympathy with them, 
he recognized certain of his own thoughts in them, and at the same time he felt a little embarrassed at having them so blown out to the point of caricature. But as he assumed that everybody else was as serious as himself, he thought that perhaps Mannheim, who seemed to be more learned than himself and spoke more easily, was right, and was drawing the logical conclusions from his principles. Vain Christophe, whom so many people could not forgive for his faith in himself, was really most naively modest, often tricked by his modesty when he was with those who were better educated than himself, especially when they consented not to plume themselves on it to avoid an awkward discussion. Mannheim, who was amusing himself with his own paradoxes, and from one sally to another had reached extravagant quips and cranks, at which he was laughing immensely, was not accustomed to being taken seriously. He was delighted with the trouble that Christophe was taking to discuss his nonsense, and even to understand it, and while he laughed he was grateful for the importance which Christophe gave him. He thought him absurd and charming. They parted very good friends, and Christophe was not a little surprised three hours later at rehearsal to see Mannheim's head poked through the little door leading to the orchestra, smiling and grimacing and making mysterious signs at him. When the rehearsal was over, Christophe went to him. Mannheim took his arm familiarly. "'You can spare a moment? Listen, I have an idea. Perhaps you will think it absurd. Would not you like for once in a way to write what you think of music and the musicos, instead of wasting your breath in haranguing four dirty knaves of your band, who are good for nothing but scraping and blowing into bits of wood? Would it not be better to address the general public?' "'Not better? Would I like? My word! And when do you want me to write? It is good of you.' I've a proposal for you. Some friends and I, Adalbert von Waldhaus, Raphael Goldenring, Adolf May, and Lucien Ehrenfeld, have started a review, the only intelligent review in the town, the Dionysus. You must know it. We all admire each other and should be glad if you would join us. Will you take over our musical criticism? Christophe was abashed by such an honor. He was longing to accept. He was only afraid of not being worthy. He could not write. "'Oh, come,' said Mannheim. "'I am sure you can. And besides, as soon as you are a critic, you can do anything you like. You have no need to be afraid of the public. The public is incredibly stupid. It is nothing to be an artist. An artist is only a sort of comedian. An artist can be hissed. But a critic has the right to say, "'Hiss me that, man!' The whole audience lets him do its thinking. Think whatever you like. Only look as if you were thinking something.' Provided you give the fools their food, it does not much matter what. They will gulp down anything. In the end, Christophe consented, with effusive thanks. He only made it a condition that he should be allowed to say what he liked. Of course, of course, said Mannheim. Absolute freedom. We are all free. He looked him up at the theatre once more after the performance to introduce him to Adalbert von Waldhaus and his friends. They welcomed him warmly. With the exception of Waldhaus, who belonged to one of the noble families of the neighborhood, they were all Jews and all very rich. Mannheim was the son of a banker, May the son of the manager of a metallurgical establishment, and Ehrenfeld's father was a great jeweler. Their fathers belonged to the older generation of Jews, industrious and acquisitive, attached to the spirit of their race, building their fortunes with keen energy, and enjoying their energy much more than their fortunes. 
Their sons seemed to be made to destroy what their fathers had builded. They laughed at family prejudice and their aunt-like mania for economy and delving. They posed as artists, affected to despise money and to fling it out of window. But in reality they hardly ever let it slip through their fingers, and in vain did they do all sorts of foolish things. They never could altogether lead astray their lucidity of mind and practical sense. For the rest, their parents kept an eye on them and reined them in. The most prodigal of them, Mannheim, would sincerely have given away all that he had, but he never had anything, and although he was always loudly inveighing against his father's niggardliness, in his heart he laughed at it and thought that he was right. In fine, there was only Waldhaus, really, who was in control of his fortune, and went into it wholeheartedly and reckless of cost, and bore that of the review. He was a poet. He wrote Polymetre in the manner of Arno Holtz and Walt Whitman, with lines alternately very long and very short, in which stops, double and triple stops, dashes, silences, commas, italics, and italics, played a great part. And so did alliteration and repetition of a word, of a line, of a whole phrase. He interpolated words of every language. He wanted, no one has ever known why, to render the Cezanne into verse. In truth, he was poetic enough and had a distinguished taste for stale things. He was sentimental and dry, naive and foppish. His labored verses affected a cavalier carelessness. He would have been a good poet for men of the world, but there are too many of the kind in the reviews and artistic circles, and he wished to be alone. He had taken it into his head to play the great gentleman who was above the prejudices of his caste. He had more prejudices than anybody. He did not admit their existence. He took a delight in surrounding himself with Jews in the review which he edited to rouse the indignation of his family, who were very anti-Semite, and to prove his own freedom of mind to himself. With his colleagues he assumed a tone of courteous equality, but in his heart he had a calm and boundless contempt for them. He was not unaware that they were very glad to make use of his name and money and he let them do so because it pleased him to despise them. And they despised him for letting them do so, for they knew very well that it served his turn. A fair exchange, Waldhaus lent them his name and fortune, and they brought him their talents, their eye for business and subscribers. They were much more intelligent than he, not that they had more personality, they had perhaps even less, but in the little town they were, as the Jews are everywhere and always, by the mere fact of their difference of race, which for centuries has isolated them and sharpened their faculty for making observation, they were the most advanced in mind, the most sensible of the absurdity of its moldy institutions and decrepit thought. Only, as their character was less free than their intelligence, it did not help them, while they mocked from trying rather to turn those institutions and ideas to account than to reform them. In spite of their independent professions of faith, they were like the noble Adalbert, little provincial snobs, rich, idle young men of family, who dabbled and flirted with letters for the fun of it. They were very glad to swagger about as giant killers, but they were kindly enough and never slew anybody but a few inoffensive people or those whom they thought could never harm them. They cared nothing for setting by the ears a society to which they knew very well they would one day return and embrace all the prejudices which they had combated. And when they did venture to make a stir on a little scandal, 
or loudly to declare war on some idol of the day, who was beginning to totter, they took care never to burn their boats. In case of danger they re-embarked. Whatever then might be the issue of the campaign, when it was finished it was a long time before war would break out again. The Philistines could sleep in peace. All that these new Davidsbundler wanted to do was to make it appear that they could have been terrible if they had so desired. But they did not desire. They preferred to be on friendly terms with artists, and to give suppers to actresses. Christophe was not happy in such a set. They were always talking of women and horses, and their talk was not refined. They were stiff and formal. Adalbert spoke in a mincing slow voice with exaggerated bored and boring politeness. Adolf May, the secretary of the review, a heavy, thick-set, bull-necked, brutal-looking young man, always pretended to be in the right. He laid down the law, never listened to what anybody said, seemed to despise the opinion of the person he was talking to, and also that person. Goldenring, the art critic, who had a twitch and eyes perpetually winking behind his large spectacles, no doubt in imitation of the painters whose society he cultivated, wore long hair, smoked in silence, mumbled scraps of sentences which he never finished, and made vague gestures in the air with his thumb. Ehrenfeld was little, bald, and smiling, had a fair beard and a sensitive, weary-looking face, a hooked nose, and he wrote the fashions and the society notes in the review. In a silky voice he used to talk obscurely. He had a wit, though of a malignant and often ignoble kind. All these young millionaires were anarchists, of course. When a man possesses everything, it is the supreme luxury for him to deny society, for in that way he can evade his responsibilities. So might a robber, who has just fleeced a traveller, say to him, "'What are you staying for? Get along. I have no more use for you.' Of the whole bunch, Christophe was only in sympathy with Mannheim. He was certainly the most lively of the five. He was amused by everything that he said and everything that was said to him, stuttering, stammering, blundering, sniggering, talking nonsense, he was incapable of following an argument, or of knowing exactly what he thought himself. But he was quite kindly, bearing no malice, having not a spark of ambition. In truth, he was not very frank. He was always playing a part, but quite innocently, and he never did anybody any harm. He espoused all sorts of strange utopias, most often generous. He was too subtle and too sceptical to keep his head even in his enthusiasms, and he never compromised himself by applying his theories. But he had to have some hobby. It was a game to him, and he was always changing from one to another. For the time being his craze was for kindness. It was not enough for him to be kind naturally. He wished to be thought kind. He professed kindness and acted it. Out of reaction against the hard, dry activity of his kinsfolk, and against German austerity, militarism, and Philistinism, he was a Tolstoyan, a Nirvanian, an evangelist, a Buddhist. He was not quite sure what, an apostle of a new morality that was soft, boneless, indulgent, placid, easy living, effusively forgiving every sin, especially the sins of the flesh, a morality which did not conceal its predilection for those sins and much less readily forgave the virtues, a morality which was only a compact of pleasure, a libertine association of mutual accommodations, which amused itself by donning the halo of sanctity. 
there was in it a spice of hypocrisy which was a little offensive to delicate palates and would have even been frankly nauseating if it had taken itself seriously but it made no pretensions towards that it merely amused itself his blackguardly christianity was only meant to serve until some other hobby came along to take its place no matter what brute force imperialism laughing lions Mannheim was always playing a part playing with his whole heart he was trying on all the feelings that he did not possess before becoming a good jew like the rest and with all the spirit of his race he was very sympathetic and extremely irritating for some time christophe was one of his hobbies Mannheim swore by him he blew his trumpet everywhere he dinned his praises into the ears of his family according to him christophe was a genius an extraordinary man who made strange music and talked about it in an astonishing fashion a witty man and a handsome fine lips magnificent teeth he added that christophe admired him one evening he took him home to dinner christophe found himself talking to his new friend's father lothair mannheim the banker and franz's sister judith it was the first time that he had been in a jew's house although there were many jews in the little town and although they played an important part in its life by reason of their wealth cohesion and intelligence they lived a little apart there were always rooted prejudices in the minds of the people and a secret hostility that was credulous and injurious against them christophe's family shared these prejudices his grandfather did not love jews but the irony of fate had decreed that his two best pupils should be of the race one had become a composer the other a famous virtuoso for there had been moments when he was fain to embrace these two good musicians and then he would remember sadly that they had crucified the lord and he did not know how to reconcile his two incompatible currents of feeling but in the end he did embrace them he was inclined to think that the lord would forgive them because of their love for music christophe's father melchior who pretended to be broad-minded had had fewer scruples about taking money from the jews and he even thought it good to do so but he ridiculed them and despised them as for his mother she was not sure that she was not committing a sin when she went to cook for them those whom she had had to do with were disdainful enough with her but she had no grudge against them she bore nobody any ill will she was filled with pity for these unhappy people whom god had damned sometimes she would be filled with compassion when she saw the daughter of one of them go by or heard the merry laughter of their children so pretty she is such pretty children how dreadful she would think she dared not say anything to christophe when he told her that he was going to dine with the mannheims but her heart sank she thought that it was unnecessary to believe everything bad that was said about the jews people speak ill of everybody and that there are honest people everywhere but that it was better and more proper to keep themselves to themselves the jews on their side the christians on theirs christophe shared none of these prejudices in his perpetual reaction against his surroundings he was rather attracted towards the different race but he hardly knew them he had only come in contact with the more vulgar of the jews little shopkeepers the populace swarming in certain streets between the rhine and the cathedral forming with the gregarious instinct of all human beings a sort of little ghetto he had often strolled through the neighborhood catching sight of and feeling a sort of sympathy with certain types of women with hollow cheeks and full lips and wide cheekbones a da vinci smile 
rather depraved, while the coarse language and shrill laughter destroyed this harmony that was in their faces when in repose. Even in the dregs of the people, in those large-headed, beady-eyed creatures with their bestial faces, their thick-set squat bodies, those degenerate descendants of the most noble of all peoples, even in that thick, fetid muddiness there were strange phosphorescent gleams, like will-o'-the-wisps dancing over a swamp, marvellous glances, minds subtle and brilliant, a subtle electricity emanating from the ooze which fascinated and disturbed Christophe. He thought that hidden deep were fine souls struggling, great hearts striving to break free from the dung, and he would have liked to meet them, and to aid them. Without knowing them he loved them, while he was a little fearful of them, and he had never had any opportunity of meeting the best of the Jews. His dinner at the Mannheims had for him the attraction of novelty, and something of that of forbidden fruit. The Eve who gave him the fruit sweetened its flavor. From the first moment Christophe had eyes only for Judith Mannheim. She was utterly different from all the women he had known. Tall and slender, rather thin, though solidly built, with her face framed in her black hair, not long, but thick and curled low on her head, covering her temples and her broad golden brow, rather short-sighted, with large pupils and slightly prominent eyes, with a largish nose and wide nostrils, thin cheeks, a heavy chin, strong colouring, she had a fine profile, showing much energy and alertness. Full face, her expression was more changing, uncertain, complex, her eyes and her cheeks were irregular. She seemed to give revelation of a strong race, and in the mould of that race, roughly thrown together, were manifold incongruous elements, of doubtful and unequal quality, beautiful and vulgar at the same time. Her beauty lay especially in her silent lips, and in her eyes, in which there seemed to be greater depth by reason of their short-sightedness, and darker by reason of the bluish markings round them. It needed to be more used than Christophe was to those eyes, which are more those of a race than of an individual, to be able to read through the limpidity that unveiled them with such vivid quality, the real soul of the woman whom he thus encountered. It was the soul of the people of Israel that he saw in her sad and burning eyes, the soul that unknown to them shone forth from them. He lost himself as he gazed into them. It was only after some time that he was able, after losing his way again and again, to strike the track again on that oriental sea. She looked at him, and nothing could disturb the clearness of her gaze. Nothing in his Christian soul seemed to escape her. He felt that, under the seduction of the woman's eyes upon him, he was conscious of a virile desire, clear and cold, which stirred in him brutally, indiscreetly. There was no evil in the brutality of it. She took possession of him, not like a coquette whose desire is to seduce without caring whom she seduces. Had she been a coquette, she would have gone to greatest lengths. But she knew her power, and she left it to her natural instinct to make use of it in its own way, especially when she had so easy a prey as Christophe. What interested her more was to know her adversary. Any man, any stranger, was an adversary for her— an adversary with whom later on, if occasion served, she could sign a compact of alliance. She wished to know his quality. Life being a game in which the cleverest wins, it was a matter of reading her opponent's cards and of not showing her own. 
when she succeeded, she tasted the sweets of victory. It mattered little whether she could turn it to any account. It was purely for her pleasure. She had a passion for intelligence, not abstract intelligence, although she had brains enough, if she had liked, to have succeeded in any branch of knowledge, and would have made a much better successor to Lothair Mannheim, the banker, than her brother. But she preferred intelligence in the quick, the sort of intelligence which studies men. She loved to pierce through to the soul and to weigh its value. She gave as scrupulous an attention to it as the Jewess of Matsis to the weighing of her gold. With marvellous divination she could find the weak spot in the armour, the imperfections and foibles which are the key to the soul. She could lay her hands on its secrets. It was her way of feeling her sway over it. But she never dallied with her victory. She never did anything with her prize. Once her curiosity and her vanity were satisfied, she lost her interest and passed on to another specimen. All her power was sterile. There was something of death in her living soul. She had the genius of curiosity and boredom. End of section 41